to Real Cinema Club. I'm James Rizika. And I'm Andres Lorente. And every other week on the Two Real Cinema Club, we watch a couple of movies, sometimes very long ones. <laughs> and then we tell you whether or not to listen to them, watch them. And sometimes we tell you not to, I suppose. Yeah, sometimes we're warning you off. It's our, our community service. We're, yeah, we're, we're providing a service here at Two Real Cinema Club. <laughs> Uh, this week, at last, at last, at last, the whole world can listen to the opinions of two middle-aged men on the Barbie movie. Um, and we're comparing that to... Il s'appelle... That's French. Il s'appelle... Oh my God, I wrote my, so many notes on this film. Woo. Um, it's called Jean Dillemont, 23 Quai du Commerce, 1080 Bouchel. Very good. Uh, I will be calling it Jean Dillemont. Uh, for the rest of the rest of the pod and and probably feeling a bit self-conscious about poorly parenting even those two words right before before we um before we talk about the movies though uh one longer than the other we should quickly do the socials uh, we had a message this week saying don't so much, spend so much time on the socials and i feel like somehow instead of giving up the socials the socials are kind of giving us up i think our twitter account recently stopped working or at least at least um podbean no longer automatically posts to twitter Uh-oh. so even elon musk is trying to is trying to nobble us Ooh. so we are on maybe twitter <laughs> possibly at uh, we are um, two real cine club at x.com Maybe. Might still be working. I don't know. We are Two Real Cinema Club at Instagram.com. You can read the blog, TwoRealCinemaClub.com. Uh, and address your emails. That's what we want. We want emails. Yeah, We're living yeah. firmly in the, the Tom Hanks late 20th century era. Uh, address your emails to TwoRealCinemaClub at gmail.com. Let us know what you think. That is the address to use if you want to tell us your opinion, ask us questions, offer us sponsorship, or if you want to explain exactly why you think noise-cancelling headphones for dogs are a good idea or a bad idea. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Uh, we'll hear. The dogs won't hear anything, of course. They'll be wearing noise-cancelling headphones, but uh, we are all ears. And finally, do leave us a review uh, if you can. I, I, I hesitate to say like and subscribe. I promised I would never say that, so yeah. I'm not going to say that, but I just did. You can find us on... Uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, iHeartRadio, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Ooh, well done, James. So after promising to abbreviate the socials, I haven't. I, I, that was longer than ever that time. No, but it was great. And then I, I realized maybe we're not providing such a good service after all. Did we suggest noise-canceling headphones for dogs? I think I think we did, didn't we? What a great idea. That is ridiculous. Oh, my God. <laughs> We'll come to regret that. Um, I just wanted to open with a quick kudo, a quick shout out to you. Oh, yes. This week. Now what have um, I done? Do, you guys, do you guys do kudos in England? I, th- I, think, I think it's kudos. Kudos. I think it is no, in this country, which is probably the same word. We say kudos. K-U-D-O-S. Yes. Kudos? Q- kudos, I think. Kudos. kudos. You know how we love to Q in this country. Yeah. So <laughs> you do. We don't do that here, that's for sure. <laughs> so we do kudos instead. I just wanted to remind the uh, the Two Real Cinema Club family that you have a gem in Dr. Rizika. Um And I say that because I listened to the Popcorn Counter last week with Stephen Ray Liedlick, which I thought you did a fabulous job on. You weaved together a story that was dead for 25 years. You made it entertaining and informative. Um, and I loved the song excerpts and the sound extracts that you added. It really brought it to life. Um, 
and our listeners probably don't know that my audio actually dropped out for the, about the final 10 minutes or so. <laughs> and I was just looking at you guys and talking to you over the, I could see you on the video. And I just saw you guys nodding along thinking this podcast is going to be so much better without me, the blabbermouth involved. <laughs> um, and it was just, it was a great popcorn counter. I thought it was fantastic. Uh, listeners should go back and listen to that. That's like episode, what, 73? 73, yeah. 73. Go find that because I think you did a great job cutting it all together. It's really an editing masterpiece and uh, you are the driving force behind this program or this podcast. So thank you. And maybe the listeners should write us an email thanking uh, Dr. Rizika for his work. <laughs> yeah, get, get, get the noise cancelling headphones off your dog. And, and, uh, and, and write us an email. I will tell you, the popcorn counter is only as good as the interviewees, and Steve was a great interviewee. He was great. Yeah, he was great. And Michael Primer recently has been great too. So we're on a roll and join us. Uh, and I, us. I tell you what, I'd never realised how good you are at lip reading, that you were able to contribute to the whole pod <laughs> while only <laughs> seeing our cameras and not listening to the audio at all. Oh, it's a sad moment for many reasons. <laughs> right, to the cinema. Um, this week we have been to see Barbie. Um, and kind of, so we did Oppenheimer last time round, and we've done Barbie this time round, and Barbieheimer has kind of become this weird uh -huh. social media meme that's pervaded the whole, the whole kind of uh, internet sphere, at least most of the internet sphere. I think I have read that a lot of people in Japan have been complaining about the Barbieheimer meme because it just seems like quite poor taste to them. And you know what? They're right. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, Barbieheimer, it seems like, I, I don't really understand why it's an acceptable combination, actually, apart from, you know, a, a coincidence of scheduling. It's a little bit like saying, oh, um, Schindler's List and the Lego movie, those two to go together very well, don't they? Let's, <laughs> Lego Schindler, it's hilarious. Actually, it's kind of not. Oh, God, it's terrible. Yeah. <laughs> I think, yeah, it's just the fact that they came out at the same time and it was... American laziness, I think, more than anything else. <laughs> and, you, and if you were the distributor of these films, you've got to assume that this was a fairly safe pairing that week. Surely the overlap yeah. for Barbie and Oppenheimer not very wide, and yet somehow they've managed to managed to kind of use each other as leverage. I don't know how that works. Well done. Well done, distributors. Uh, so the Barbie movie, directed by Greta Gerwig, uh, and uh, please write in to tell me that I've pronounced her name wrong. She directed Little Women a couple of years ago. Have you seen that? I have seen that and Lady Bird, which I think preceded. Yeah. That was her first director. And, and Francis Ha before that. All of those movies, Little Women oh. is the only one that I have seen, but it's a terrific yeah. picture. Um, uh, I thought it was a lovely feature. Very good. Um, the film was uh, written by uh, Gerwig with Noah Baumbach, um, well-known Wes Anderson collaborator. Collaborator. He wrote um, on uh, The Life Aquatic with Stephen Zizou. Mm-hmm. He wrote on Fantastic Mr. Fox. He wrote on Francis Ha. Interestingly, he also uh, was a contributor to Madagascar 3. I don't know whether you have seen that, but um, by far the best of the Madagascar animated films for kids. Good fun, Madagascar 3, actually. Really good. I, I still have to get to the first one. Is it called Madagascar 1? It's, called, or it's, it's just, just called, called Madagascar. Madagascar. But mm. yeah, uh, probably 3 doesn't make sense if you haven't seen the first one at least, but 3 is probably the best of the, of the, the, the bunch. It's good. Um, so, you know, big starry cast. Margot Robbie was apparently like the fourth or fifth in line to play Barbie. And a lot of people turned Ooh. it down before she said yes. Ryan Gosling is Ken. America Ferrara, Kate McKinnon, Will Ferrell channeling that Lego movie energy. Um, mm. Star studded. Uh, and it's being a hit. It's passed one billion quite recently and still going. Ooh. 
was that a B B B billion? Yeah, a Barbie billion, absolutely. So I don't think anyone anticipated it was going to quite make this kind of money. Um, well done on the promotion. Shall Ooh. I tell you what it's about? Please do. So, um, the film starts with a brief 2001 A Space Odyssey uh, homage. And my daughter, when she went to see the film, came back absolutely glowing that she uh, identified what the homage was. Uh, she was so pleased. <laughs> oh, I, I understood that joke. Um, so after the opening, we dive deep into the world of Barbie. A heavily Mattel branded Barbie. Mm. Barbie is a toy doll who lives happily in Barbie land with hundreds of other Barbies and dozens of Kens, all of them played with by unseen hands. They spend their days driving to the beach in her pink, pink convertible. Uh, they spend their evenings dancing in formation uh, until one night, uh, exactly 15 minutes into the film, I check my watch, uh, she finds herself uh, derailed by an existential crisis. Do you ever think about death? She asks her Barbie friends. Something is wrong. And uh, the only one with any answers is local guru Weird Barbie. It turns out the girl playing with Barbie must be the source of these negative thoughts, Weird Barbie says. And the only way to stop them is to visit the real world, find her owner and help her. And we have a movie. So Barbie mm -hmm. and Ken journey in her pink convertible to the real world. In this case, the real world means Santa Monica, Los Angeles. Is that like the real world? Well, your guess is as good as mine. Uh, they go there anyway to find her girl. But as Barbie tries to help, Ken becomes enchanted by the power, confidence and self-determination that men seem to enjoy in the real world. So he takes a handful of books back to Barbie land to establish a patriarchy. Meanwhile, the executives at Mattel, trademark, discover that there is a Barbie <laughs> loose in the real world and they have to try and track her down before there are dire consequences for the whole of Greater Los Angeles. And that is the basic setup for the movie. Ooh, well done. And I like <laughs> the trademark Mattel because the branding is crucial in this film. <laughs> The branding is very heavy in this film. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know, I've, did, you, did you enjoy Barbie? I really liked this film, yeah. I was surprised <laughs> how much I liked this film. But there are massive caveats that we'll get to. But um, I, I must say, I mean, I did come away feeling that, you know, it's, it's clever and fresh and current, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. You know, I, I do have some questions about how, about the way that it uses its currency. You know, a lot of the, I mean, it's the film ends up largely for a film with Barbie in the title. The film is largely about the manosphere. Mm. You know, it's a film, I think, about the effect of Jordan Peterson and Andrew Tate on the modern world. It's kind of, you know, it's about Trump. I mean, it's wearing its political badge on its sleeve and then it's an enormous amount to enjoy. Yeah. My question to you is going to be, though, for all its currency, did you laugh? I, I did. Again, I'm always writing notes in the dark in the theaters, so... <laughs> I smile. I think I smile more. <laughs> I smile, laugh. Um, I did. I laughed out outright a few times. Um, 
And it was more, it's more, it's wittier than I think it is funny. I think that's probably what oh, it is. Oh, that's a good way of phrasing it. Yeah. yeah. So if you're reading in between lines and the subtext, it's not that deeply buried. Um, so it, it's easy to, to just smile at things, I think, uh, but not laugh hilariously. I don't, you know, it's, I don't think it's a full on comedy. There's some great moments and uh, some of the song and dance stuff really made me that, that was an opportunity to laugh, I think, because they're singing and dancing. You're not disrupting any dialogue or anything like that. So I think some of those m- moments were laugh out loud. Um, so I did laugh. Yeah, not tons. Again, I don't think it's entirely comedy. I think there's more social commentary, as you sort of alluded to. I mean, I, I don't know whether you've seen the Lego movie. I have not. I think Barbie is, it's, it's, this, this film has drunk deeply from the well of the oh. Lego movie. Um, oh. And the Lego movie, it's a very sparky Lord and Miller script. Um, very fun. I guffawed out loud many times at the okay. Lego movie. I've seen it several times with the children and it still makes me laugh. And oh, I good. thought that Barbie was um, trying to mine that same seam and it's not as funny. Oh. I, 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 you know, I enjoyed it, um, but I appreciate your comment that it's wittier than it is funny. Yeah. There are a bunch of great gags. I mean, there are good gags. Yeah. Um, in fact, would you mind if we ring the spoiler bell now and then I can talk about some of the gags? I think you have to. I think you've shown great restraint in not <laughs> ringing the spoiler bell. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ring it now. I've, I've had my hand on the hammer for too long. I'm going to ring the spoiler bell now. Ooh, I feel sorry. I forgot how loud it was. And um, so, I mean, so there is a great speech towards the end of the movie about being a woman, yeah. um, which is which is you know witty and funny, and it's not something that we haven't heard elsewhere and it comes, you know, straight out of a number of people stand up sets, I guess, but it's a, yeah, but it's a terrific speech and I really enjoyed it. And there's some, you know, there are some great heavy handed gags about kind of mansplaining the, the final almost, well, one of the final gags in the film is, is Barbie um, after the story gets resolved and Barbie manages to dismantle the Barbie land patriarchy. She tells Ken that she promises him one day he will have all the power and influence that women enjoy in the real world which I thought was one of the best gags. Yeah. So there is plenty to laugh at. But I also did find that some of the gags fell flat. You know, the whole thing could have been just a little bit smarter. And interestingly, I know we often complain when films have multiple writers. Gags, I think, are about the one thing that it is possible to throw many writers at and get something for your money. Sure. Um, and that's that's always kind of been my dream gag. Producers who are tuning in, that's my dream gig, um, is to be told to kind of smarten up and write gags on almost any script. I'll very happily come in and write you 20 gags on any script. And if two or three of them stick and, you know, two or three yeah. of them stay in the script, then I feel like my job has been done. Yeah. Um, writing gags is, you know, is a fun, a fun gig. Um, and it is a way to smarten up a script pretty quickly. But mm, overall, you know, oh, maybe they should have got, um, Lord and Miller in to come and do a quick mm. a quick chrome uh, comb through the script and, and kind of um, buff up the gags a little bit but that's churlish there's there's plenty to enjoy there are some things in the film that could have been cut though uh, and if I was going to nominate anything to try and uh, speed up the whole movie um, there is an entire subplot where Barbie goes to the the Mattel building and um, and ends up you know, causing a bit of a, a Benny Hill style chase with the entire um, board of Mattel, which I thought could be entirely cut. Will Ferrell, um, who who uh, has a big part in the Lego movie and has feel like he's been drafted in here um, to do the same kind of job. Um, his entire subplot basically is extraneous, I think. I think it could and should be cut. Did you Did you enjoy Will Ferrell in this movie or did he feel superfluous to you? Superfluous. Um <laughs> 
I, I think they they do all their business in the one shot. Then one of the you know the, the first time you see this board, it's all white men in suits, and I think that's all they needed to do really because yep, it it's almost as if. It's just another layer of antagonism that's unnecessary. I mean, the, the antagonists are really the Kens who are sort of rising up against a uh, 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 Barbie land um, and making it into a patriarch. So that's the real antagonism. So then you get this secondary bit, which is very weak, really. They're trying to force Barbie back into the box for whatever reason, and that's going to solve all the problems. And then... They chase, I guess you haven't gone into too much detail in the story, but they, they chase Barbie and her new uh, uh, allies back into Barbie land, and it takes them forever to get there, so they <laughs> arrive very late. They're not very scary. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I def- that definitely came up on my list. I hadn't thought about cutting them entirely, but at least making them stronger, but they are superfluous. I think you're right. Uh, I mean, you could you could chop twenty minutes out of the film, which would probably leave you a little bit more space for some gags. And I yeah. think the story and the whole point of the story still works just as well. I agree. If they were relegated to a single gag, where you open the boardroom and it's all white men, um, there you go. There's your best gag. Well done. Fantastic. Yeah, that's it. That's all you need to do. The, a group of white men in suits trying to get a woman into a box. That's that's the metaphor. That's the moment, and then yeah. it, it loses its power as a result of just keeping them in the film and having them clumsily ride a nine-person bicycle back into Barbie land or whatever it is. And yeah, it just doesn't work. It does It does kind of lead me on to my other... And I don't want to be a downer on this film because I did really enjoy it and I kind of sat yeah. beaming through most of it. But my other kind of downer is uh, what what is happening with the story world in this film? Um, I, I There's like... There's a there's kind of two story worlds where the story happened. There is the story world yeah. of Barbie Land, and I feel like yeah. that's really well thought out. Um, and then they visit the real world, and the real world is just all over the place. I simply don't really understand what are the rules in the real world. This notion of a, a kind of a fantasy character who then comes from the world of stories into the real world has been done like many times before. It's, it's we've seen it in Enchanted, and Last Action Hero, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. This is this is you know a, a fairly standard trope um but and this time round, i just don't really understand or recognize the real world that they go to this kind of santa monica that they enter it seems kind of barely less cartoonish than barbie land they, they kind of they arrive on yeah. sort of santa monica beach and you know they, they pass a bunch of construction workers who are all sitting down and they take turns to make sexist comments you know, they visit a school that's quite happy to admit strange-looking adults in revealing clothing. <laughs> you know, they're allowed to steal books from the library. Nobody kind of mentions anything about why is a man in a cowboy outfit stealing books from the school library? That seems suspect. I mean, the, the people in the Mattel Corporation are at least as cartoony as Barbie Land. Um, so I don't really understand how how this kind of um, this fish out of water story works when you know she she's kind of gone from one water to a pretty similar water maybe with a different color palette but otherwise the rules kind of seem all over the place and that could be kind of intentional just to show how and maybe we'll talk about this with our friends at the squad later but um how um playland like los angeles is and the filmmaking industry is and even obviously the toy making industry is um but i also think that you cannot start looking for the logic behind the curtain in this film because presumably everything that happens in Barbie land is the result of young people playing with Ken's and, and uh, Barbies everywhere. And 
You know, okay, the, re- yeah. the reason there's one person playing with what do they call her stereotypical Barbie? Yeah, or, that's it. Yeah, yes. there's one person playing with it. It's actually an adult Amer- America Ferrara's role, um, and that one person is able to change the behavior of the doll, even though millions are playing with it all at the same time. And then everything that happens in Barbie Land presumably is the result, if you follow the logic, presumably the result of people playing with Barbie Land in the real world. Um, okay. Yeah. So I, I think the, you can, you just cannot look at the logic of it at all. And <laughs> I mean, I, in some ways, it seems appropriate that they make uh, Los Angeles and Santa Monica look like uh, a Playland as well. Um, <laughs> but yeah, don't look too carefully. I mean, and you know, the one line that I really liked, which sort of stated the theme, I think. Um, I think it's right around when she meets. I think Barbie's ran into, run into some trouble in the real world, and she finally says, the real world isn't what I thought it was. And I thought that was that's mm. kind of like the whole theme of the movie to a certain extent, that and buy, 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 buy toys. That's the other <laughs> theme of the uh, movie. But, um, yeah, I, I wouldn't look too hard at it. Um, I think it's it's a little bit of laziness in the writing and the, and the filmmaking, I think. So, I mean, you are right that um, part of the message of the film is buy toys. But I... I did come away slightly feeling, well, I wasn't sure who this film is for. You know, who is it aimed for? I feel like the the main thrust of the story is about the manosphere. Mm. Um, and yet the obvious market is, it's either, you know, families or I'm going to, I'm going to make a bit of a sexist suggestion here, which is it, the main market is girls. Um, uh, but you know, the main political content is about ideas which are addressed to men. You know, even like the biggest set piece in the movie, which is you know, glorious and tremendously enjoyable, is the huge Ken dance-off that happens you know, towards the end of the second act. And that's like an exclusively male event. Um, and I kind of feel like, is, is a, a child audience well served by a film which is largely about toxic men having an epiphany? It feels like you know, there are a number of jigsaw pieces here which have sort of been sandwiched together, but they don't quite fit. And the the, the, you know, the ultimate result is a enjoyable confection. Mm-hmm. But I'm not sure that all the ingredients quite mesh together to make a single meal. Yeah. So you, you have just alluded, though, to what I thought was my very favourite plot point and something which I think is sort of fairly significant. Um, my favorite moment in the film is um, this great story surprise when it turns out, this is like, a, I suppose it's a midpoint maybe when it's the, the surprise is that the person who has been playing with stereotypical Barbie yeah. is an adult and not a child. Yeah. This kind of, this notion of adults playing with children's toys. I don't know. That's, that's something that just really gets to me. I don't know why, you know, when I know, you know from my own experience, you know, playing with toys, it is still kind of fun as an mm-hmm. adult. Um, I remember my nephew once asking me at Christmas, he was kind of asking me, wasn't it boring being an adult? Because you don't have any toys to ask for. And I kind of explained to him, you know, actually adults you know, have plenty of toys, but they don't look like children's toys. You know, and adults have motorbikes or, you know, expensive stereo systems. All, all these things are essentially toys, but they are, you know, the adults' toys. And Lego now, I see, have many ads Um which directly target adults. And they show adults building these complicated Lego sets and saying, hey, great, Lego is for adults. Don't be embarrassed if you want to go and buy Lego and and make it yourself. My neighbor, a few doors down, is very, very proud of his Lego Death Star, but he forbids his sons from playing with it. It's his. You know, he's not letting his kids touch it. Um, I find something, there's something kind of bittersweet and rarely seen about that kind of 
inner child adult yeah. playing with toys, which I which I find kind of surprisingly authentic and moving. Actually, I I, I enjoyed that plot point a lot. I, th- I think it answers your last question too. Is that you know, who's the f- who's this for? I think it's actually for the people who buy the Barbies and those oh. are not the, the children. Those are the adults. Um, so this film necessarily works on a certain level of nostalgia for the adults who remember playing with Barbie uh, and who are pr- currently buying Barbies for their children. I think. Um, so I think that answers that question about who it's for. Um, for sure. And then I think there's been this trend, I'm going to go back maybe 30 years, where the children's, you know, who's buying the tickets for these children's movies? It's the uh, adults. Yep. So then they started to make things like Aladdin, I think it was the first thing I remember with Robin Williams vamping all the time, really bringing some adult humor into it so that it's not an adult reluctantly sitting down and watching some vapid children's film. It's an adult taking a child and it's sort of for for both generations, I guess. And I think that's a yeah. pretty narrow line to walk. I don't think this works as a children's film straight up other than it's eye candy. Um, and, for, you know, it's two hours, so that's sort of an adult te- attention span. Well, maybe not the modern adult, but um, <laughs> most kids are not going to sit still for two hours. So I think it's definitely for adults. I Definitely at the screening I went to, there were plenty of uh, children in, in, in pink and all that. It's become sort of a, you know, a, a cult movie or a, a period piece already. Um, but I think it's, yeah, it's largely for the adults. And I think it's, again, it's all about buying Barbie. I hate to ruin the secret, um, <laughs> but, and the ones who buy Barbie are the parents. I could, yeah. I mean, I, you are right. I suppose. Um, uh, I think, uh, Rachel suggested that maybe the film is aimed at, uh, adults who used to play with Barbie because there are you know, a number of gags, um, which, you know, maybe aren't easily explicable if you've never played with Barbie. This notion of having a weird Barbie, the Barbie that you kind of scribbled on and yeah. you cut her hair, and but you didn't want to throw her away because she's, you know, she's Barbie. So so you end up having this kind of weird Barbie that you don't know what to do with. Those sorts of things are, you know, maybe ideas that are not obvious unless you yourself have done that playing. Yeah. Um, so it's partly about an audience who are the age of America Ferreira, who, uh, who is, um, you know, now remembering playing with Barbie yeah. rather than playing with her currently. Uh, I got a question for you about um, about who the film is for, because th- th- there was one gag which I really thought, do I maybe I just do not understand this gag at all. Maybe this is a gag which is, is more understandable to a different audience. I don't get it. I think there is some gag about how when Ken arrives with Barbie in the so-called real world, and he's very impressed by the confidence and the agency that men have here. Mm. The men that he's modeling, modeling himself on are men at Century City. And they kind of, they say it's a couple of times. And I was trying to understand, is there, is there something about Century City? Is it that Century City is commonly, you know, like a hangout for gay men? And, and you know, the idea that all the, the men that... Um, Ken so admires are actually you know self-determined confident gay men mm. and not straight men who would be pursuing Barbies in the Barbie land world that, that Ken thinks they are is that the gag because I wondered whether there's some cultural reference there that I just don't get I think there's actually a clever irony there in the sense that Century City is also um it's a big filmmaking place. So mm. it's almost, he's actually seeing a mirror of himself and thinking that's the real world. So these are like 
the stereotypical masculine men. Ironically, even someone like Rock Hudson, who of course later on came out as gay, but played these studly and masculine characters in films and the John Waynes and all that. So, and he's he's infatuated with horses, right? He thinks that horses are some clue to. Uh, <laughs> indicate uh, masculinity. So I think it's really kind of a clever mirror of him actually seeing a fantasy world, thinking it's the real world, and then taking that back um, in order to begin to garnish some power in in Barbie land and turn it into a patriarchy. That was my take on it. I don't, I mean, so for me, it's a it's a nice gag. It's a little bit subtle, perhaps, and maybe that's why it escaped you. But I think, yeah, when you talk (laughs) about Century City, I think of... uh, real like the heart of filmmaking but ah uh, right okay yeah so that utterly utterly escaped me unsurprising of course that i know nothing about the heart of filmmaking that's my career in a, in a <laughs> nutshell there yes <laughs> the dark heart it's the dark heart of filmmaking um there were a few i i i'm reading far too much internet at the moment so it means that trump and his many many indictments are often at the front of my mind yeah. i did feel like there were you know a lot of you know fairly straightforward uh, fingers pointing directly at Trump in this film. Yeah. And again, I don't know whether that is me inferring more than is really there. In the uh, the Will Ferrell scene, I feel like they 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 made a a kind of a a, a reference to that um uh that binders full of women um gaff that mm. uh, oh I can't re- now remember the American uh, political the Republican candidate who said well, I was given binders full of women who was that oh I don't know binders full of women binders he was kind of he was kind of criticised for having no women on his on his kind of team and he was like oh no I've been given binders full of women yeah but I don't know whether that again is intentional or whether that is something which has simply come out of this kind of manosphere coverage anyway I, I think it's intentional I think it ties to the the Century City bit as well in terms of this uh, Make America Great Again sense that uh, the country was greater in the 50s or the 60s when Ah. men were on horses and very masculine. You didn't have to worry about uh, people being binary or non-binary or uh, gays were in the closet. And I think that really points right at Trump. So even the binders full of women might have been a Trump thing. It seems the film seems pretty focused on sort of modern conservatism and and, uh, the Make America Great Again philosophy. But then as important as it is to address these current issues, I was kind of disappointed that in a film about Barbie called Barbie, but where Barbie is the central character, the main thrust of the story is kind of about Barbie reacting to Ken. I felt like she kind of wasn't given as much agency in her own film as I thought she would have. Yeah. It's like all of her energy really is spent trying to tackle the way that Ken has messed up rather than you know, have problems which really belong to her, which she can address on her own terms. But I felt that there was, there was more Ken in Barbie's movie that I felt entirely comfortable with. That's a good point. That's a good point. I, um, I have another reading on this film. Um, I would mm. spell it Barbie, B-A-R-B-E-E. Because <laughs> there's some moments where I realize, like... It, Barbie land in the beginning is a real beehive of of of, of uh, female empowerment. And, you know, they're flying planes, they're doing all the construction, they're doing all the work. Yeah, and the Kens are kind of useless, which is exactly what happens in a beehive. the The males, the drones, are only good for mating with the queen, and nothing <laughs> else. So I, I, I do, I do see it as this, uh, you know, this female empowerment film, and how it we'd probably be much better off. We would be much better off um, if the world were run by our uh, queen bees, I think. Um, so I, I 
do see it as a real feminist piece. And I think sadly, it's kind of, it's honest though, in the sense that for, you know, my entire lifetime, for the history of the world, basically, um, women have had to react to the mistakes of men or the, or the, the, <laughs> the, uh, the decisions of men, let's say. So I think, um, I think it still works, but you do have a good point is there's a lot of, uh, reactivity, I guess, or reaction, uh, writing here and, and plotting here. Um, I still think it's good. I think it still makes a good point, though, in that way, and that, that the women really, when the women were running things, it was perfect in Barbie land, and then as soon as Ken comes back with his horsey philosophy, uh, things go to crap. <laughs> and I think that's, yeah, I, I think that's an intentional theme. I think it's done intentionally. Um, but again, I, I keep thinking, oh, well, this is all the boys and girls and, and children playing with Barbies in the real world that are d- dictating what happens in Barbie land. And I think that you can't accept that logic because that doesn't really work here once they've gone into the real world. It's almost like they brought in some contamination to Barbie land and the, and the real world patriarchy starts to invade Barbie land. Right. Yeah, it's another one. Those kind of um, moments where I'm asking, you know, what exactly are the rules? How does this work? But yeah. I can get too hung up on that. Absolutely. I think you know, as a as a as a big, bright pink neon metaphor, I think it you know it works and it's very enjoyable. For all that, though, um, I wonder whether we can still find uh, a couple of indictments uh, that the cliche squad might be interested in. I believe we can. We can do this. <laughs> to channel our inner Barbie and call it out. <laughs> I could. I, I feel uh, a little bit bad sicking the cliche squad on this movie because a, a lot of the film is about you know, the active deconstruction of cliches or of challenging stereotypes. And, yeah. you know, and, and you know, stereotype is the name of one of the main characters. So it's yeah, you know, it, it's the film is trying to address these things. There are a couple of little things I did note in my book while while we were um, while we were watching the film. Um, one of them because I've been criticised it for it myself. Um, uh, the idea that uh, when you have an argument with somebody, you throw their clothes out of an upper story window. I put that. <laughs> I put that in one of my early scripts, and I was told off for it quite roundly. Oh, by wow. saying this is something that happens in every film and never happens in real life. Do not put this in scripts. And uh, yeah, and here it happens here again quite early on. Um, and and my other kind of you know, uh, cliche that I'm always a bit wary of is the small world cliche uh, when you get. Uh, yeah. characters who are connected in two ways in order to simplify the plot. So yeah. here, um, America uh, Ferrara's character is um, uh, Gloria, that's it. Uh, she um, you know, is the one who has given Barbie an existential crisis and brought her to the real world, but she also works for Mattel, designing yeah. Barbies. Oh. And it feels, I, I, kind of when I saw that, it really feels like a, a plot element that's left over from an earlier draft that was mm. never deleted somehow. There's really no reason for her to work for Mattel, designing Barbies. It's, you know, it's absolutely fine for her to be somebody who is you know, an adult playing with Barbies that used to belong to her child. Yeah. And it kind of adds nothing to the story, so it just ends up making the real world feel somehow more small and contrived. It's just a realistic uh, con- con- contrivance, I think. It's just a, it's a coincidence. It's just it's a, a coincidence. coincidence. These things happen all the time. All the time. Um, 
Yeah, and an extension of that is just how easy it was to find uh, America Ferrara's daughter, Sasha. One <laughs> yes. school, bar- all Barbie has to do is sit on a bench and in a city of millions in <laughs> L.A., you know L.A., it's a, it's a big place. So it's amazing how just sitting on that park bench and thinking about it, she can go right to the school where um, the mother of the, uh, uh, where the daughter of, the, of America Ferrara's uh, character is. Uh, yep, that's definitely... <laughs> cliched. Um, it's all in the name of shortening the story. Well done. For me, I had a couple cliches, and I realized the reason these really jumped out to me, I think, in hindsight, is that they really affect the story. Um, okay. And we sort of talked about them. So um, I, I, L.A., Los Angeles, as an image-obsessed playground for the thoughtless. I mean, I think that's just uh, – it's kind of real, so I get it. But it is also a cliché. Um, and I think it's sort of, you know, it affects the film in the sense that the playground, the, the playland, Barbie playland, isn't much different from L.A. as you alluded to earlier. And I think that's, um, I think it ends up hurting the story. So that's a cliche that I think hurts the story. They could have gone somewhere else for the real world or or maybe spread their wings a little bit, have her travel a little bit more or something. But um, I didn't think that worked very well. And I also just... Um, the whole film sort of lacks a little bit of darkness. And I think that's in part because L.A. is... Um, it's it's treated very brightly and warmly, and it's not it's not dark enough. Like the Mattel characters are not dark enough, and that leads me to my next one: is that uh, the other cliche I think is incompetent businessmen in suits. I mean, <laughs> you see a board full of men, and I I get it. I like this as a cliche. I like the fact that they use it, but I wanted to see them be so much darker and much more nefarious, and they're not. And and you know, in in part, it's because you can't really criticize. Oh wait, what is it? You can't bite the hand that feeds you. This is no. Mattel, so I guess you can't portray the Mattel board as being very dark. But maybe a little later in the podcast, we'll talk about how they are kind of dark. Ah. So those are my two. And I think in hindsight, they really, they they jumped out at me because they really affect the story, I think, in a negative way. I wonder the story could have simply been improved by having the Mattel Corporation have their headquarters in Baltimore, couldn't it? Yeah, Or Detroit or something like that. It's where they needed to go. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Okay, well, there's, there's still more to talk about. Yeah. Barbie. But let's yeah. we'll have a break. We'll have an ad. Um and then we'll come back and I think you know Barbie will kind of inform a little bit of our discussion about Jean Delman. Yeah. Um so there's yeah, more to say. Let's have a break now and we'll come back. After many months of preparation, the Two Real Cinema Club is delighted to announce the launch of our new service. It's a social media platform. It's a messaging app. It's a payment and banking app. And it's called F. (laughs) F will be your one-stop shop for everything in your digital life. Want to contact your friends? F them. Want to tell the world your thoughts? (laughs) F it. Tag your buddies in photos and video clips by telling them they've been effed. Soon you'll be effing it up with people all around the world. It'll be the first word on everyone's lips. F this, F that, F the lot of you. Download the F app and you'll be shouting from the rooftops. F it all. And we never forget that the user experience is at the heart of everything we do. You're our customers. And our first thought is always... 
how can we absolutely F you up as much as possible? So get effed <laughs> today. Did you say you wanted a social media app that's kind, inclusive and well moderated? Well, F you. Awesome. Now we're in money. That's, that's <laughs> what's going to make us some money. That's going to make us some money. Yeah. <laughs> I might stop making electric cars too. <laughs> Oh, Mitt Romney, that was it. Oh. It was binders. Mitt Romney who said, yeah, I've been, I've been given fold, binders full of women, is what he was saying. Ooh. And welcome back from Barbie land, all you two Real Cinema Club listeners. And when we say F you, we mean it in the kindest, most loving, most supportive <laughs> way it's you can possibly imagine. Uh, the other film we watched this week, Jean Dillemont, 23 Quai du Commerce, 1080 Bouchel. That's the title. I could listen to you say that all week, you know. That's, oh, I okay. say it so well. I don't think I can say it all week, so that's not an option <laughs> for you. Um, just the title, very banal, and sort of indicates how overlooked this protagonist is. It's like her address and the things that happen mm. there are the film. Um, and I, I've got to ask you why, and I've got to preface it with... I won't tell you how I feel about this film for a little while. Um, okay. I felt like this was Blonde Payback. I asked you to watch Blonde last fall. It was three <laughs> hours. This is three hours, 22, 20 minutes. I think it's 22 uh. minutes exactly. Um, I think this is a great pairing for bizarre reasons, but I want to know why you did this to us. Do you have any other questions for me, counsel? I mean, you... Uh... You are right that this is um, it's a bizarre pairing. It'd be difficult to sell this to any um, theatre owners as a, a viable Don't. double bill, but I do think <laughs> these films kind of belong together. So this this film, um, last year, I think in 2022, it went straight to the top of the Sight and Sound Best Films of All Time list. Yeah. And when I saw that, I realized, well, I've never seen this film. Never I'm embarrassed it. to say I had never even heard yeah. of it. Yeah. Um, and uh, so when I read a little bit about it, I thought, well, actually, mm, you know, this is a, you know, a, a challenging film about the, uh, the lives of women in the 20th century. You know, maybe this is actually kind of the right film to, to, yeah. to, to pair it with Barbie. You know, in a way it is and in a way it absolutely is not. Mm -hmm. But I, I thought this is a good excuse. And I feel like. You know, part of our remit, we watch an old film and a new film, and generally the old film, you know, we, we don't choose duffers. Yeah. Um, it feels reasonable that we ought to watch what is now officially the greatest film of all time. Yeah. So this seemed like the right opportunity. Um, had you heard of this film before? Never, never. <laughs> I hadn't heard of it until it was the number one film of all time in <laughs> film history, international film history, on everyone's top lists. No, I had never heard of it before. Um, I know now that it was written and directed by Chantal Ackerman, um, mm. features Delphine Serig in the title role of uh, Jean Dillemont, or as we might say in the United States, Jean Dillemont. Um <laughs> And I actually think, you know, whereas Barbie Land is the play world and their real world is still kind of the play world, this film is very much the real world. Yeah, the real world in real time, isn't yeah. it? And it's, um, I learned that it was a five-week shooting schedule. Um, and it was made with a $125,000 grant from the Belgian government and grossed 
$3,600. I find that really hard to believe, but that's what IMDb had. So I'm sure it's made some more money than that. Uh, it's made in 1975 or released in 1975. Um, and I think about that shooting schedule. I want to talk with you later about like, how do you rehearse for this film or what this script looks like, but maybe I should dig into the story. But I also, I'm going to invite you to chime in a little bit because I have, Okay. this is the kind of film where I'm doing a lot of thinking while I'm watching and mm. writing notes. So I kind of made a long, longish synopsis, but I feel like there are going to be some moments where we can sort of talk about the film as we go. That's great. I wrote a synopsis for this film and it was two sentences. So oh, really? <laughs> you've done much better than me. Yeah. Um, well, the other thing is, and then... Does it make sense to have a spoiler bell when very little happens? Is there much to spoil? I, um, I think there is something massive to spoil. I agree. Maybe we'll, I, so let's, let's talk a little bit. I think we should read the spoiler bell in part. I okay. think it's worth discussing the, uh, the, uh, the Google synopsis for this film oh. after, after we've talked about it a little oh, bit. Be, because I, th I think there is a spoiler bell worth ringing. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, so Jean Dillemont is, I call her a house widow. She's the, the, she's at the titular address where she keeps house impeccably. She has these very concrete routines for cooking and cleaning, um, which we see repeatedly with very little dialogue or music. Um, you just get the impression she's a loner, but she's very well put together, always dressed in a skirt and heels. And sometimes she has one of these, um, house coats, a cleaning mm -hmm. sort of. Um, yeah. cover for her more uh, elegant clothing. Um, she is fastidious and efficient. She never leaves an incandescent light in an even temper. She never <laughs> leaves it on in a, even a temporarily empty room. And I can't tell you how pleased I was to see that because it's great characterization, number one. But I also live in a house where it appears everyone is up and awake at all times of day and night <laughs> because no one ever turns a light off. So it was just refreshing. <laughs> Um, but all these details, just painstakingly delivered to film, um, make this seem like a very mundane um, film because it's just focusing on all the ever-present tasks of life, all the chores. And I watched this film over three nights. So I did, it's three hours, 22 minutes. I watched an hour each night, and it happens to take place over the course of three days. So it actually worked out really well for me. You said you watched it a little differently, and maybe the results were mixed. Well, we so we watched. Uh, we were aware that it's a three-hour, twenty-minute film. So we watched an hour, and then had to go and start doing um, doing uh, kind of chores and get dinner ready and things like that. And then yeah. settle down to watch the remaining two hours and twenty quite late on Sunday. Oh, okay. Um, so yeah, so I I wonder whether watching it over three nights that's almost watching it in real time, isn't it? Yeah, and that maybe that's the right way to watch it. I don't know. It it worked beautifully for me, and I also found myself just focused on my own chores. I washed my dishes very beautifully. I tidied my belongings. <laughs> I even flossed my teeth two of the nights during the film, and it's, this is an inspirational film in that sense. Um, Hitchcock, Alfred, famously said that. A good film is just like life with all the boring bits cut out. Hmm. And this film is just like life with all the boring bits left in. Yeah. And actually, these boring bits are sort of made the center of just lingering attention for a while. Um, at the end of the first act, uh, somewhere on the first day, a man arrives, rings the bell. He, she lets him in. Um, he spends time with Jean in a back bedroom of the small apartment. Uh, 
and he gives her money as he leaves. We don't see anything that happens in the back bedroom. Um, and then Jean just very carefully washes her entire body in a long <laughs> bathroom scene. It, uh, very clean after this scene. And I think this is probably where I would ring a spoiler bell. Yeah, uh, let's, let's, let's ring it now because yeah, there are things to spoil in this film. Absolutely. Here we go. Listeners, you are warned to spoil away. Yeah. Well, the next thing is the, the spoiler is that a lot of the same stuff happens again. Lots of cooking <laughs> and cleaning and tidying the apartment. Um, the viewer has a lot to do with this story. A lot of work to do, I think, because um, the pace of the film, it moves very um, carefully, slowly, I guess. Um, you have a lot of time to work out some of the exposition. So... You're thinking after that first uh, visit from the, the, the man on day one that Jean is a sex worker. You, you figure that yep. out. You have yeah. to do a little bit of work here. Um, but um, she lives this, again, we said it's a very modest and orderly life. Um, I think it's in a busy part of Brussels. So you don't really know where this apartment is. You don't see the, outs, the exterior until probably the end of the first day in the film. Um, there are these flashing lights um, coming in through the dining room uh, windows and which is also sort of like the salon windows. Um, so it feels like she's in a port part of the town or a factory district. Mm. Uh, and this this light just invades her world all day and night. She doesn't seem to do anything about it. She never closes the curtains or anything, but it is an interesting little touch. So you have to, as a viewer in this film, you've got to start thinking about why are we seeing all these things? What's important? And you sort of have to work out the exposition um, for yourself. But we do learn that uh, Jean has a son, Sylvain. He comes home... Um, and they have this routine together that just happens day after day, eating dinner. They read together. He does some homework. She always asks him to stop reading at the table when they're eating. <laughs> uh, they prep his bed, which is the sort of a fold-out uh, sofa in the salon and dining room space. Um, there's very little dialogue in the film, which it it first seems kind of stilted and unnatural, but I think it's appropriate because, again, it sort of isolates uh, Jean in her world, in her mind. Uh, she has little to say to the men who pay her for sex, and she doesn't have a whole lot in common with her you know, now fatherless son other than life's basics. So I think it, the silence, as stilted as it kind of seems and unnatural as it seems, I think it lends to the story again. So again, yeah. the, the listener, the viewer has to work this out a little bit. Uh, Jimmy, what's your take on that? I mean, the silence and... I mean, it's it's kind of, it's like, the, it's the soundtrack of quiet desperation, isn't it? Yeah. I um, I didn't realise until I read a little bit about this film that it's, this is part of the slow cinema yeah. movement, which is, again, something that I had never known, although I have seen plenty of films which uh, follow this kind of pattern. Um, oh, as are Balthazar. Uh, yeah. The donkey movie we watched a few months ago counts sure. there. And then Solaris and Stalker. Um, yeah. Okay. Even like one of my favorite films ever, The Taking of Power by Louis the Sixteenth, uh, Louis Fourteenth, sorry, by Roberta Rossellini, I think must surely be in this genre. And like Cachet, if you remember that, mm. Hidden. Um, even um, Close Up, which is the, is it the Kiristami film, which I thought was terrible. I saw that film twice and I fell asleep both times. Oh, yeah. But, but there are you know, lots of films in this kind of slow cinema yeah. genre. You have to, it asks you to adjust to the pace of the film. The yeah. shots are very, very long to the extent that I was wondering whether you know, the length of the shots was largely determined by the length of a, a piece of 35 millimeter film. Um, you know, that was going to determine how long the shot was because you know, it couldn't, couldn't last longer than four and a half minutes because that's how long you were able to shoot without 
changing the reel. Yeah. You know, the camera is absolutely static. Yeah. I love the camera work in this. I mean, I think it's fantastic. I love static cameras, but here, you know, the camera has been put on a tripod and no, not touched. You know, and you let the story unfold yeah. in front of a completely static camera. There's a relatively shocking moment towards the end of, I think, is it towards the end of the second day, or maybe it's during the third day when. Um, things start to go a little bit haywire and she starts yeah. to get like a little bit muddled and, and her world starts to turn upside down yeah. where for the first time you get a different shot of the armchair in her living room. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And have, you've become so used to the fixed views of the inside of this apartment that for you to suddenly see a new bit of the apartment from a new point of view is, you know, is actually quite shocking within the context of the film. Yeah. Um, the way that the pace works to kind of, to force you to think about the events, to you know, to live the events that she's living, um, is you know very clever. It's where the power of the film comes from. I thought it was kind of fantastic. Yeah, it is. And so there are no close-ups really. Basically, it's based on where the movement is in the room, where the actors are moving. That gets you a closer view. And sometimes a lot of the action happens off-screen mm. because the frame is just showing you what is now an empty room, but you start to, you learn her routines. You really learn her life. So you know what she's doing off screen by the sounds that are, that are happening. So the silence actually, for me, it really enhances those few sounds that you do hear. I remember listening for the elevator because mm. you know that she's getting visits and the neighbors are otherwise very quiet. Um, but I was listening for everything as a result because that was p such an integral part of the film. And there's there's something about the way that because the camera doesn't move, it it's extremely non-judgmental, isn't it? Mm. It just shows you you know what is happening without making any. It makes absolutely minimal comment on what's happening. It yeah. allows you to make your own decision. I wrote in my notes here. Um, you know, the film shows Jeanne and does not judge. Who is the camera in this film? The camera is the eye of God. It sees everything mm. without judging. Um, I just think God judges, doesn't it? <laughs> That's his main job, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, judgment Day. Um, so through, uh, we do get a bit of exposition through a, a letter from Jean's sister who lives in Canada. We know that she's been widowed for six years, that John has been widowed for six years, and um, there's some contact with the family in Canada, but not much. Um, on day two, something that happens is a doorbell rings uh, during her chores. It's not the day's client, but a neighbor dropping off a baby. And it's interesting how Jean just takes the, the baby carrier, pays little attention to the infant, goes right back to her routines. Um, the neighbor is actually played by the director. Miss Eckerman yeah. is completely off camera. She's never invited into the space. Um, she's probably gone 10 or 15 minutes. I don't even know if that's real time or it probably is real time, honestly, with this film. Um, before um, she comes back to collect her baby. Um, so a question arises for me immediately. Like She's living this well-structured life. It's all organized, but you wonder about her happiness. She doesn't seem happy. She doesn't smile a lot. Um, and, and nothing happens in her life, and nothing happens in this film, yet everything happens. It's sort of about nothing and everything uh, simultaneously. And this is the point where I started to think, you know, life is... It's by its essence full of all these dull moments and how we approach them says a lot about who we are. Um, and she's got that stiff upper lip. She's just doing her chores, running her routines. Um, and that's why the film kind of feels like constant characterization as a result because you really learn her, her resilience. You learn her character going through all these activities that should be absolutely boring. But and, you know, I never get the idea that she's happy, um, but she's succeeding. She's pulling it off as a widow. 
Can I ro- I'm going to roll back to the neighbour for a moment yeah, there. Yeah. Yep. So this happens twice, isn't it, that the neighbour drops the baby off and Ewan appears to, to get the baby back after, like you say, 15 minutes. Yep. Um, what is happening there, do you think? Uh, they are exchanging solids. Those are solid favours. So my feeling was the neighbor is also a sex worker. Yeah, right. Okay, I was going to say, I thought the same thing. Yeah, yeah. drops yeah. off the baby. And then at some point, Jean probably has something for her to do, or this is just a routine. Um, so yeah, that's exactly. And again, that's the, the viewer doing a little bit of work to figure yeah. that out. It took me the, on the first visit, wasn't sure. By the second visit, I definitely was. So it's, I mean, in some ways, it's a super efficient film in the sense that you're getting these really non-dialogue scenes for the most part. The, the neighbor does rant at her for a little while, but John is not really interested in talking. She just wants to get back to all those routines. Um, Although, interestingly, when the neighbor does rant at her, she has this kind of weird sort of existential crisis at her, doesn't she? If she's kind of saying, you know, I, you know, like I, you know, I don't know what to do. I was queuing up at the meat counter. I had no idea what to order. Yeah, so I just right. ordered like randomly the thing that the lady in front of me ordered. Yeah, it's like it's like the like the neighbor is also somehow kind of like numb to the world and doesn't know what to do or out of place in the world. I imagine if you're a sex worker yeah. and, any, and your neighbors know about it, then you probably feel a little bit ostracized. So you're just doing what other people do to feel normal. I don't. It's a, it's a again, it's a great piece of characterization. It's wild that it comes in such a slow movie um, yeah. feel. Um, Okay, I think we move on to client number two. After client number two comes, uh, I think we only see them in the dark, which is very interesting because she's always turning lights on when she's going to be in the room and then turning them right off. But when he's leaving, I think that's mostly in the dark. Yes. Um, And Jean is just uncharacteristically frazzled. She's a mess. Something happened. Um, and this is where her acting totally changes. She has to sort of become a different person because she, her life has been disrupted. She doesn't wash herself. She ends up spoiling dinner and the yeah. potatoes because she's not focused. She's inattentive. And this is where Delphine Serig just does wonderful acting because she has to become a totally different character all of a sudden. And this is one of the most striking midpoints I've ever seen in a film because it's a complete change from the first half of the film. She's Ackerman has spent so much time setting up this ordered world, and then all of a sudden, one thing happens in life, and we have no idea what happened to precipitate the change um, because all the client's visits to this point have occurred off camera. And the film sort of starts to pick up some pace, and we clearly see the upset interior mind of the protagonist. So we always talk about that when we're writing about characters. How do you see what's inside just using pictures and not having them confess in dialogue? Here you see it. And I, I was just, I was amazed how this midpoint struck me as a viewer. And, but like the actual moments of her kind of personal disintegration are so tiny, aren't they, and subtle. It's yeah. just, you know, she drops, a, she drops a brush when she's cleaning the shoes. Yeah. You know, it's, it's tiny. Or she drops a spoon. It's these little tiny, tiny things. Yeah. Yeah. But that is, you know, enough to to represent her her disintegration. Yeah. It's yes, yeah, it's, it's fantastic. It's you know, it's such clever and effective, understated storytelling. Uh, so that's day two. Sylvain, or son, comes home. He kind of notices that things are askew. Um, the apartment's not as tidy, and his you know, the dinner's not perfectly ready. So it's very atypical for their their evening. Um, as he goes to bed, he talks about um, the friend who's talking about sex in school, and he's kind of re- experiencing some revulsion. And eventually, mm. uh, Jean Diamond just sort of cuts the scene short um, and turns lights up. Oh, she's always turning lights on or off. She turns lights out on him at the end of day two. And I think, you know, it's certainly another indicator supporting this idea that 
she's sort of uncomfortable with the sexuality and she might not be the happiest of sex workers out there. Um, and she doesn't really want to talk to him about it at this point. I, I like that moment and it sort of ends day two, which is the odd day. Um, I think we need to talk about the trips that she makes with her son at the end of each day. I, that's one thing I did not get. And I think they, I forget if they do it on the end of day two or not, but they're, they sort of leave the building after dinner, before he's going to bed, um, each night, and then it's not clear at all. And my, I was, I didn't know if I needed to turn the brightness up on my screen or something. Like that, <laughs> I didn't see anything. Did you catch any of what that was about? Or my main take home from those went from those scenes was that they have quite interesting streetlights in Belgium. I thought, <laughs> um, but otherwise, I, I mean, you absolutely can't see a thing, can yeah, you? Yeah. I mean, it feels okay. like it's just purely available light. I am guessing that most of the film was shot in a studio. I don't think it's a real apartment because okay. I didn't see how you could have fit the camera in. Yeah. But, um, but you know, these parts, these brief outdoor jaunts um, must be, uh, you know, shot with a available light on real streets. Yeah. Um, and it was, I, I took nothing more from it than that they have a little walk around the block for some fresh uh, air after dinner, but they say nothing. Okay. You know, they don't speak to each other. It's not that they chat uh. about this or that, or they go somewhere even. It's like they do one little spiral around the apartment in okay. utter silence and then return. Ah, that's possible. Yeah, I was just wondering if there's something more there and I was just getting a little lazier, was just clueless, but it was very difficult in part because of the lighting, but also just because of the setup. Like, where would they go after dinner? It's not an ice cream, for example. They're not going out for a snack or something like that or to visit a neighbor. So, uh, but it's all part of the routine. Um, day three is sort of much back to normal. She helps her son get ready and goes to school. Uh, she returns to her chores, but she starts to encounter these problems again. She spills some things. It's not terribly messy, but it's just in not the routinely well-ordered day that uh, she's accustomed to. She's alone. You, just, you really didn't sense her loneliness by this point. Um, there are never really any neighbors around. She's going in and out of the building uh, with some frequency. Mm -hmm. You never see a neighbor. You only hear the one neighbor. Um, but one thing that strikes you on day three is that she sits doing nothing where normally she's always doing something. Yeah. She has a couple moments where she needs to sit down. So you know that there's some changes going on. Um, I loved a lot of the little metaphors that emerge in routine daily life. I'm the kind of person who probably reads way too much into everything in my life, but I loved it. You know, the milk was bad, but she reacts mm. by making new coffee. She's showing resilience. You know, if something bad happens, you just don't think about it. You just undo it. And I like that. Um, she simply watches the coffee as it filters and brews, which is kind of odd. I don't think she, I don't remember her doing that on the first day, but, um, but she's definitely stuck in and she's encountering daily life and she's not avoiding all these chores. She's still doing them. Um, the neighbor comes again, delivers the baby again. And this is a very different scene because it shows you that Jean, with the infant anyway, not a great mother. She's actually agitating this baby more than helping <laughs> it. And then she eventually just sort of abandons it, lets it calm itself down. And you can still hear the baby crying as she goes back into the um, kitchen to sit. And that was the moment where I thought, okay, this neighbor is also a sex worker. Um, she also needs the occasional 15-minute breaks. Um from the baby and they're just exchanging favors um we're getting to the climax sorry mm. we're taking a long time but this is a nope. slow movie so yeah, absolutely it's a, good a slow movie uh jean goes on this bizarre quest for the perfect button i know that doesn't sound like an action scene but it is <laughs> uh i think it's sylvain's coat or sweater needs a button um and she's out going all around i mean we don't have these many button stores in uh uh, in Portland, I don't know, but in the 70s in Brussels, I guess there were a lot of button stores. Um, 
She returns home and she, there's a package. She's been checking this mailbox again and again, and then the payoff is finally there's a package not in the box, but sort of lying against the, the wall. Um, she's unable to untie it with her hands, so she crucially gets mm. some scissors to open the package. Uh, contains like a new nightgown was my feeling. Um, she holds it up and, you know, she's going to wear it at some point. Client number three comes and engages in some very disappointing and sloth-like sex, which Jean sort of loathes. She's just on her back. Um, we should probably tell the listeners that every time a sex uh, a client is going to come, she has this towel on the bed. So they're just lying in this one <laughs> yes. position. And I thought he was dead for a moment because he just wasn't moving. <laughs> it's just the strangest thing. So then I thought, oh, God. Um, he's punished for this terrible sex uh, by getting scissors to the throat. So Jean has finally snapped. <laughs> Who wouldn't? Uh, she never cleans up the sex slash murder scene. or She never, you know, um, even cleans up herself. So she sort of sits bloodied at the dining mm. table. There's a little bit of blood on her blouse, maybe on her hands. And those waterfront lights just keep passing over her through the salon window and at one point I thought, did she stab herself too? Is she just waiting to die? But then I was just thinking, how will life change now? Um, and we don't see that because that's the end of the film. I feel like yeah. this was always going to be a really difficult film to end because it's life and every detail in it, and it goes on and on and on. Um, so it's it's sort of a disappointing ending in the sense that you really come to really appreciate this woman and empathize with her, but it is the right ending, I suppose, in the sense that she's just snapped. She's had enough and... Now she's bloody, sitting at her table, waiting for her son to come home. I don't, you have to do some work to predict what would happen in the future. But yeah, that is Jean Dillemont. It's, I mean, it all kind of, yeah, turns around in those last two, like last two shots, basically, isn't it? And like yeah. the final shot is about four and a half, five minutes. It's yeah. just her sitting at her table in silence. Yep, kind of doing nothing, watching, watching the the, the flashing lights outside. And it's you know, it's at that point you realise those kind of blue flashing lights. You know, they are obviously from some kind of neon sign or advertisement, yeah. but they could easily be the lights of a police car as well. Yeah. I think that's what they're intended to to kind of refer to. Yeah. Uh, now that we're past the spoiler bell, can I read to you yeah. the Google oh, yeah. synopsis for this film? Oh, boy. Which I think is absolutely incredible. I, mean, I just got I have to read it out to you. Okay. I copied it down here. Please. This is what Google synopsis is for the film. It's two sentences. It says... Oh. A lonely widow turns to prostitution to make ends meet for herself and her son, but things change when she kills one of her clients Ooh. with a pair of scissors. <laughs> oh, that's terrible. <laughs> it's good. Much better than my synopsis. Shorter. Which is uh, absolutely but, incredible, isn't it? Yep. Um, and, and so, in, yes, so, so this is the thing that happens in like the final two yeah. camera setups of the entire film. Yeah, yeah. Is that, is that second, um, second sentence? Yeah, so it's, and it's incorrect to say things change because they don't really. I no, mean, she kind of goes right back to her sitting down and doing very little. Um, and it's also, you know, you, again, you would think that that would precipitate something. We'd see another movie after that. But we've already been in for three hours, 22 minutes. You're not going to see anything more. Um, that's bad. That's astonishing, isn't it? I, I, I was so incensed by that. I thought I had to write something similar. So um, here, here's my new synopsis for Star Wars. Oh. Tell me if this makes any sense. <laughs> Luke, Luke Skywalker is a kid curious about the Galactic Rebellion, but everything changes when he uses the Force to blow up the Death Star and is given a medal by Leia, a space princess. <laughs> it's like... Um, just, just go immediately to the very last scene. That's, <laughs> that's what we want from all our synopses from now on. Oh, man. Um, 
that I now you and I are uh, men of a certain age, as we've discussed many times. I have you know lots of I had lots of memories of my own mother when watching this film. So I would have been mm. you know, about five in 1975 when this film was made. Um, so you know a bit younger than Sylvain, but. Um, you know, my mother had a house coat that she would do yep. um, chores in and these yep. kind of trips to the haberdashery department, you know, sewing on buttons, the hours spent preparing food and then serving food. And even, you know, you know when I was a boy, we had letters from Canada uh, you know, and, and my father would painstakingly write these handwritten reply letters on yeah. that kind of that super thin blue airmail paper. It was a lot of my own memories of my own childhood brought alive mm. by this film um to the extent the film kind of almost feels like a sort of like a dream of my own childhood uh so you know i felt a lot of personal connection you know, yeah. with the kind of the, the story world in this film and it certainly feels you know very authentic this feels you know very real and very yeah. um you know uh, very alive which kind of what makes the ending even more remarkable and shocking because yeah. it is really kind of shocking. You know, you have this this moment when she snips the string from the parcel and leaves the scissors yeah. just you know hidden behind a picture. I think it's her wedding photograph, isn't she? Isn't mm -hmm. it that she leaves yeah. them behind? You know, and it's very underplayed. And once again, this is not a Hitchcock film where the camera zooms in on the scissors. Yeah. Um, but it allows you to do the work to think, oh, I haven't seen those scissors before. I bet something's mm -hmm. going to happen. Yeah. It just kind of just tickles your eyeballs with that. And yep. then before she murders her final client, it's like the first moment when she seems to have like a real you know, emotional reaction, doesn't she? So she and, you know, and reading the summary online, it's, you know, it's not clear. And I still feel in, not entirely clear whether, you know, does she have an orgasm during the scene or is it that she mm. has you know this sudden overwhelming film feeling of self-disgust but that yeah. she has like a you know, very very vivid emotional reaction the first time yeah. we've seen her be extremely emotional um, yep. at any point during the film and that's what precipitates this sudden um moment of violence yeah you know, it's it is a pretty shocking um moment and you know, not something that you would predict. I think in the first hour and a half of the film, it you know really leaps out at you. So it's one of the things yeah. that makes the film you know it gives some of its tremendous effect. Yeah. The uh, one thing I noticed during the film, which is the, uh, I thought was maybe my favourite detail, the son sleeps on this sofa bed. Yeah. You know, at night they un unfurl the sofa bed, and he lies on it, and he's you know the only character who opens up emotionally, and he talks. You know, quite yeah. explicitly about the things that he feels and the things that he wants to know. Mm -hmm. um, and then every morning she folds the sofa bed back up. And that's exactly what she does to her own character as well. She folds herself into this small, mm -hmm. neat package in just the same way. Yeah, it's a, you know, a lovely piece of kind of mise-en-scene, I suppose it is, isn't it? It's of using the, the, the things that are in front of the camera yep. to tell the story about the characters. Metaphors everywhere. And in a very claustrophobic space, I think the claustrophobia is really important too. It's all, I mean, most of the film occurs in the apartment and the apartment has, he's sleeping in the salon because there's no bedroom for him. So there's, it's really like a three room apartment. I yeah. Suppose, right? Yep. We see the, we see the bathroom. You got a bathroom. We spend, spend plenty of time in the kitchen, the dining salon, and then 
the bedroom where her sex work takes place and that's it so it's you're enclosed and as you said before you know this camera's not moving it's showing you fairly small rooms again and again and it just contributes to the the claustrophobia of her entire life she has these outings looking for buttons and whatnot and doing some shopping but um, it mostly takes place right there in that reduced world um one thing that really struck me is um this is show don't tell to an extreme mm. like ackerman shows everything um which is you know it's it's great i don't i'll talk a little bit about how this film is really for a different era i think but um you know film goers now after what seeing films for 100 years we make certain jumps we don't have to see every little entry and exit of every door um we we don't have to see see everything spelled out for us because we can piece things together. As long as they're chronological, it's easy to piece things together. And sometimes you look at student films or young films that they show everything. You know, the person leaves the house, opens the car door, turns the key, backs out, gets on the road. When in fact, we can just see the person go out the door and or just right to the road driving. You know, um, she's showing everything. Mm. Um, and I think it. You know, again, here it's a, it's thematic. It's appropriate because the style. Um, um, is all about showing her life in just painstakingly uh, filmed detail, I guess. And it's really, her life is so established. And that the idea is that you the payoffs are when something surprising happens, it really surprises you because you've sort of been lulled into this, yeah. this rhythm. Um, and at, for that reason, I think, again, this is sort of a film of a different age and maybe for a different age or certainly for a different attention span. Um, she has an inner life. Um, and it's hard to sort of piece out together, but that's what's going on is that she's really set on these routines because she needs that order, I think. Um, you know, if, in this day and age, if she were looking at her phone all the time, <laughs> she's an example of someone like depending on external life to have an internal life. But she's cl- clearly thoughtful about everything she does and all her busy work. And she's, you know, established routines so that she can do that efficiently. Um, but I think that's that's the window into her interior life, whereas you know, no one's going to watch that coffee filter and brew right now. They're going to be on their phone texting someone, and that takes them out of their own life to a certain extent. Like, they're not really in that room making coffee. They're actually somewhere in the cyber world yeah. talking about films with friends or something like that. So um, I think it certainly works for a different audience, and it, I just couldn't see a film like this being made today. Though I did think that the moments when she tells her son, uh, oh, no reading at the table... That yeah, <laughs> I feel like that reflects something that I say most evenings at the at the table. Is oh, no phones at the table, or more likely, yeah. someone tells me no phones at the table. But we we still yeah. have that issue, uh, even today. We should. I, I, there's a lot more to say about this film, but I think maybe we'll talk about it when we try and bring the two films together. Sure. Um, let's before we before we do the synthesis though. I, I, this feels so petty going to this after the after the profundity of Shandil Man. But let's very quickly play. Who am I? Who am I? Well, not an awful lot of characters to choose between in the second no. film in today's pairing. Um, and, and I would prefer not to see myself as any of the, the clients uh, <laughs> that, um, that kind of that give Shan uh, Dillman a, a quick 50 in the that afternoon. Was my, that was my note. I'm certainly not those clients she has. <laughs> God, interestingly, I think all, all those those three guys are all um, uh, 
Belgian uh, filmmakers or film critics, apparently. Oh, really? Oh, wow. So, uh, so kind of, yeah, film industry insiders playing these horrible seedy men. Um, if I was going to be anybody from the two films today, I reckon that I, yeah. um, weedy, self-conscious, awkward in company, I am Alan from uh, Barbie, <laughs> play, played by Michael Cera, who's the one kind of self-conscious guy who doesn't really quite fit oh, in anywhere. And I thought, yeah, that's me. There I am. That is screen. a good character and one that I do not remember at all. I mean, I, I don't think we had a Barbie in the house. I didn't follow Barbie and Ken very much. Um, so I don't remember Alan. I don't remember a lot of the the alternate Barbies. Um, so um, Alan was a, a revelation to me for sure. Um, <laughs> I I think I am weird Barbie. I like, <laughs> I like weird Barbie. I just like that that outside divergent thinking problem solving but sort of being seen as something of a weirdo so i really responded to to weird barbie i thought kate mckinnon was great it was a good character to have and again not a character i knew existed in in the barbie world so um those two characters are two people who are absolutely new to me so i, I like that um, uh, they must surely be selling weird barbie and alan dolls now surely they surely. surely well we'll get to that i think we're gonna get to that. that's the big <laughs> that's the big uh the big comeuppance at the end um I also really related to Jean Dillon, honestly. I just, um, I think it's just that all the chores, I do all that stuff. <laughs> That's me. So <gasps> disturbing. So I, I very carefully tucked away all the scissors after the watching the <laughs> film, <laughs> hid them from myself. Um, this is what it's like to feel seen, isn't it? I feel seen. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I think uh, you're right. There aren't a lot of characters to relate to. Um, but I definitely found one or two. Well, let's 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 bring the films together then. Okay, yeah. let's, let's and and because I you know these are once again you know the same coin, two different sides. But see, yeah. see if we can we can flick the coin, see both sides at the same time. I'm going to start by just saying I I can recommend Barbie. I think most people would find um, something entertaining or, or uh, thoughtful in it yeah. of all ages. Um, I, I'm going to recommend Jean Dillon, but with some major asterisks. I think right. our, our audience needs to know it's slow. I think we've made that clear. It's more than three hours. Not a ton happens. Um, but it has this effect of just slowing your brain down and lulling you in. It's kind of mesmerizing. Um, and again, I watched it over three nights. That might help. Um, but it's a little brain break from the modern world. But this is not an action film. <laughs> this is not a popular film, I don't think, or popular culture film. So I, I would I recommend it with that asterisk. We've watched it for you. We've talked about it in great detail. So we've spoiled it perfectly for you. You don't need to see it, but I really was amazed how much I responded to it and how much I liked it. Uh, again, maybe in small doses, an hour and a night. I, what's interesting, I think, is that they're, these both of these films, Barbie and Jean Dillman, they're both kind of about the disempowerment of women. Or yeah. like the way that women are kind of, you know, asked to fulfill expectations, although the expectations of them may change. And there's that great speech in Barbie about how, um, you know, these days you're expected to kind of to be everything and do everything and you know, be grateful and not be challenging. Um, but but there are still expectations which you are expected to fulfill. And, yeah. you know, and you're expected to put your needs beneath those of others as a woman, whether it's in 1975 or 
2023. You know, and they both kind of detail a sort of existential crisis for a, a woman protagonist. Um, and also, you know, they both they they you know they both kind of have as their kind of story goal a kind of resolution um, in the main character's relationship with a man. Mm-hmm. At least in in Barbie, um, Barbie is at least able to help Ken mature a little bit. Um, and in Jeanne Dielman, well, you know, she does resolve her relationship with men in a pretty definitive way. Um, but there's this big difference, which we've kind of alluded to earlier, which is that that Jeanne Dielman is a film about a woman and the challenges facing that woman. And Barbie is much more a film that's kind of you know, nominally about a woman, but really it's kind of mostly thinking about men and about masculinity. And so her, you know, her own film um, sees Barbie reacting to men rather than being the full on protagonist. Yeah. Whereas at least for Jeanne Dielman, there is no question of who the story is, uh, who mm-hmm. the protagonist is, or who you know the issues are about, and who the person with the problems is. Yeah, and I mean, I think True Life lies somewhere between Barbie and Jean, um, and it's a lot closer to Jean Dielman, obviously. <laughs> but uh, I think, yeah, I think you're spot on that um, the men play a big role in both films. Very ironically, I think. Um, and sex does too. It's it's interesting that the you know the fi- the climax. Oh gosh, <laughs> I guess that's the right word. The climax in Barbie is that she gets to have a vulva, right? She goes into the uh, gynecologist's office or something and says, "I'm here to see." Yeah, I, <laughs> my doctor I about think my vulva. So. And I wasn't I wasn't at all sure whether that was something that she um, that you know, naturally arrived when she entered the real world. Whether she was going to have yeah. to surgically. Uh, get given one. I didn't quite understand what the it, gag was there, actually. But yes, yeah. absolutely. It's it's certainly it's you know, it's about kind of taking ownership of her genitalia. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's somewhat. I mean, this whole film has been about other other forms of empowerment up to that point. It seems a little ironic that it comes down to that. It's a clever ending. <laughs> I mean, I I liked both of the endings in this these films. I thought they were appropriate for for what they were. Um, let's see what to talk about. There's so much to talk about. I mean, I, I think. We should probably talk about the real reason why Barbie was made. And this is, <laughs> this is the big caveat for me. Um, I will also say that there is a scene in which three Chevrolets are cruising down the highway right <laughs> next to each other. And it looked like a Chevrolet advertisement. It was a Chevrolet advertisement. And then Fender got in there, too. I guess Ken must have had a... Maybe Rockstar Ken had a Fender amplifier, and that was in there. I mean, this film, oh, is, yeah. this film is definitely about advertising. It's definitely about Mattel. And I props to Mattel on some level, because I think there's a lot of self-aware and self-effacing stuff in here. There's, it's a clever piece of art and advertising. It works on both levels. Uh, Mattel uses their own logo to beep out... Or bleep out... Um, Foul language, obscenities. I mean, I like this, but here's my take is that I fear this is the beginning. I fear there will be a lot more of it. Um, This could be a great off one piece, um, but it's not going to be a one-off piece. There are going to be a lot of these to follow from a lot of other um, corporations, I think. So it's – I feel – that they've milked this for all it's worth. It's very clever the way they went back and introduced all these old characters and used Barbie Land as a prop or as a story world. Um, but I think they're really just sort of bringing out 
they're kind of rehashing. It's brilliant. They're rehashing their old product line. So things are going to sell from the past and things are going to sell in the future. Um, and I think they're just going to inspire other toy makers and basically junk makers to do the same thing. <laughs> so it was, I wasn't surprised to hear a follow-up uh, within a week of watching this film that they're already making and selling more useless, non-biodegradable plastic shit toys, and they're selling a <laughs> lot of them. That's in addition to the billion that's been made on the film. And so it's, it's just a weird bit of success, I think, for the filmmakers. It's going to be a strange reckoning because it's a clever film. They are clever filmmakers, but... There's some soul selling going on right here, and it, I don't think it's good for the environment. I don't think it's good for culture. I think it's a deal with the devil that I think it's really going to compromise their effort, and it's basically just big advertising. So that's that's my take. I liked the film. That's the dark caveat. And I wanted darkness in the film itself. I didn't want the darkness to be exterior. Spread into the real world, Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> we can look forward to the Play-Doh cinematic universe anytime now, <laughs> yes. Frisbee the movie, it's all, yeah, absolutely. It's coming, it's coming. <laughs> it's coming. That was something that um, Barbie made me think of, which is a piece in the Washington Post from last month, which was quite a bit talked about online. I don't know whether you've encountered this, called uh, Men Are Lost, Here's a Map Out of the Wilderness. Oh, yeah. Um, so I did kind of pick up a lot of talk about this. I read, you know, I kind of read the article at the time and I copied a little bit down to my notebook here where it kind of it starts out with saying that you know, men have a widespread identity crisis as if they don't know how to be. Yeah. Um, I had this kid show up. I say he's a kid. He's an undergraduate. And the first question he asked me is, what the heck does good masculinity look like? And, and you know, the guy she's interviewing here. Um, who's like a, a uh, like a um, doctoral student at an Ivy League university, and and he says, "I'll be honest with you, I didn't have an answer for that." Uh, so there is this kind of well publicized uh, masculinity in crisis angle, which many people are getting many yeah. column inches out of, you know, and, and this is a large part of what. Um, uh, Barbie is kind of addressing in this kind of zeitgeisty way. I'm a little bit mystified by this notion of uh, masculinity in crisis. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, Jordan Peterson is taking over our youths. When I feel like it's a strange question to ask, what does good masculinity look like? Um, when you kind of think, well, isn't, yeah, if you have a book to sell, then I can understand that you may wish to say, or you know, it's impossible to answer that question in any fewer than 80,000 words. Mm. But you know, my kind of immediate reaction is, well, what is what is good masculinity? Is it maybe just not being a dick? Is that is that yes. too difficult? Is that too difficult a place to start? <laughs> and that's just four four words. The other seventy nine thousand, you could have those for free. It's yeah. like it, it, it um, it's always it's one of those issues where I kind of feel it shouldn't really have been built up into the big issue that it is. This does not need a three thousand word opinion piece in the Washington Post. It's just you know maybe try and think a little bit and don't be a complete dick yeah um and yet uh you know this ends up being you know the made the source of the major story beats in in barbie yeah and i wonder whether you know this whole kind of you know jordan peterson men are lost angle will be the starting point for many other stories as well and it's um it's it's going to maybe be a you know, a fairly simple problem that ends up with very complicated solutions. It ends up being, a Barbie, that is, ends up being a pretty political film. And I know that right-wingers hate this movie. It's just too woke for them. Um, oh, that's another good reason to recommend it. I like exactly. it even more now than I did 20 seconds ago. I loved how woke it was. And, I, you know, their, their response is totally expected and, and predictable and, and totally on point for them. Um, 
But I, boy, I don't. I have nothing to add to what you said. Just don't be a dick. <laughs> that's the starting point, right? I mean, that's most of it, right there. That's, that's, yeah, that feels like eighty percent of the journey. Yes, yeah. absolutely. I think I can do that. I think I've been doing a pretty good job of it, and I'm going to continue <laughs> doing it. Um, but I, sadly, I think there is definitely a, uh, sort of a, a masculinity problem in the United States. It's not that uh, men. Um, it's not that the questioning is not the problem. Just just being better men is the I think the problem in this country anyway. Um, so I'm going to go to something kind of related that's uncomfortable for me. But um, oh yes, and it's Jean Dielman. It's the the big difference between this book is uh, these two films is um, I think anticipation. So I have this confession. There were moments where I, f- I found this film sexually exciting. I know that makes, <laughs> that makes no sense whatsoever, but. Watching the characterization, I just assumed John was this amazing and super professional sex worker because she did everything so beautifully in her house and with such attention and loving detail, you know? Um, but it's sort of this, it's it's Jaws. It's not showing the shark until you have ah. to, right? So I found myself really interested, even on this purely physical level, that towel down. I kept thinking, okay, that's key. Um, <laughs> so it's very funny to find that it's actually totally boring and that the sex is just humorously underwhelming. It's and that, you know, she does it's not shown. Ackerman doesn't show this until the very end of the film, really maybe the fast last twenty minutes. Um and I just it kind of occurred to me the guy probably deserves to die for being such a poor shag and <laughs> makes her want to kill him, I think. So um, I love the anticipation because I just assumed it was a different kind of oh, exotic Belgian sex that was happening. And that's why she was so highly paid and that's why she was so good. But it, it was an interesting play on anticipation, I think. Um, so and the moral of both films basically is men be better, isn't it? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you. End of podcast. Um, <laughs> but I think, you know, by comparison, there's not much anticipation other than who's the next person to advertise in the Barbie film. Um, and, you know, Greta Gerwig and Noah Baumbach are serious filmmakers. I'm, I'm kind of torn on their work. I'm not a big Baumbach fan um, at all. And uh, Greta Gerwig, I remember her as an actress, and I think she's, she's really coming into her own as a director and all that. But it, it's just this deal with the devil of, of the advertising. And um, I think that was always under, it was always on my mind watching this film. It was like, what's the what's the next bit of advertising? What's going to happen next? Because it, it just feels, I mean, it looks like an advertisement in many places too. So, um, so different levels of anticipation between the two films. Oh, money changes things, doesn't it? And yeah. a billion dollars is a lot of change. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, it's it's uh, we. I'm difficult to imagine that we won't have a Barbie two and then a Barbie three. Ooh. And again, it's difficult to imagine we won't have um, this notion that somehow you know, cinema has cracked the uh, the selling toys again yeah. problem. Are we going to have uh, more and more adverts that we pay ten bucks to go and see on a big screen? Yeah. Do you think we're going to see a Jean Dielman at a slightly different address, like uh, Van Croix? <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, I think she will probably be in prison for 30 years, won't she? Um, yeah. Uh, right. Well, um, from the sublime to the uh, to the slow, let's uh, have a quick chat about what also has Ooh. been playing at this theatre. Yeah. So a um, bit of a funny week for us this week. Um 
I was uh, searching around on the list of uh, most popular films on the streaming sites yeah. uh, to see something we could all watch as a family, and, and we watched Everything Everywhere All at Once Ooh. last Saturday. Um, and I tell you what, I think there is still too much dildo fighting in that film. <laughs> Watching it a second time round, I enjoyed it tremendously more than the first time. Oh, good. OK. I think I was able to relax into it a little bit more. Uh, I understood what I was letting myself in for. Yeah. And actually found it very enjoyable the second time round. Worth seeing a second time, I think. Better second time than the first okay. time. Okay. Huh. Uh, how about you? You seen anything else this week? Well, yeah, I would say that first of all, that's the one film I get the most flack on for my uh, my critique. So maybe, <laughs> maybe I'll sit down and watch it another time. Um, I had a pretty good week. Um, I sort of eavesdropped and I guess it's secondhand uh, viewed uh, a Ted Bundy docu series on Netflix. He's a uh, a serial killer from the nineteen seventies, which. Kind of. It paired paired well with John Dielman for some reason, but uh, (laughs) in hindsight, um, the thing that I really watched uh, full on with full attention was um, a film called Bombshell. It's the story of Hedy Lamarr, who was an Austrian-born actress in maybe the 30s through the 50s or 60s, um, went out to Hollywood, considered one of the most beautiful women um, in cinema and film history, but was also just a brilliant scientist. And she actually um, invented some of the, the the sonar detection for um, underwater torpedoes and things um, on the side. This was her side gig. Um, and that's, that's one of those things where, you know, if it appeared in a film, you would think that's a totally ludicrous subplot. Absolutely absurd. And there will be a biopic probably soon. But this was a great documentary. And uh, that same technology is used basically in everything. Cell phones, uh, satellite technologies. Um, <laughs> it's She's made this. In, and she did not really get credit for it. And she didn't get compensation for it. So she ends oh. up, she ends up sort of living a, an impoverished life by the end. Uh, and one thing that really struck me was this. Um, do you guys study Ponce de Leon at all in England? I don't think I could even spell Ponce de Leon. Okay. I don't even know what that is. Is that, is that is that like a marzipan cake that you have with tea in the afternoon? Uh, sounds delicious, but I would not eat Ponce de Leon because he was, you know, he would be rotten by now. He's a probably a 16th century Spanish uh, explorer and conquistador. Oh. He goes to Florida to find the fountain of youth. Oh. And what he actually found was the very first known and documented plastic surgeon. Because <laughs> Hedy Lamar just starts going into the plastic surgery spiral, and it's she's gorgeous. She's beautiful. Um, and then she starts probably when she you know, gets into her 40s and 50s, and her Hollywood career is kind of uh, winding down. It's just this cautionary tale because she just goes in for way too much uh, plastic surgery and loses her beauty. And, and she's also she's kind of lost her money. Um, and she's not compensated for this technology she's invented, and it becomes quite tragic. Um, mm. So I just wonder, have you been involved in plastic surgery you, as an anesthetist? Do you, are you in on any of those? That's a very so, elective surgery, right? I, I can't... There, well, ah, well, you see, plast, so there is a difference between plastic surgery, mm-hmm. which you know, literally just means you know, surgery of the skin, and it's yeah. tremendously clever stuff, and you can move bits of skin from here to there. And, yeah. You, know, you pull this bit up and then you cut out a bit of that. Um, and so that is commonly involved in the breast cancer surgery okay. that we do yeah. uh, every Friday afternoon, or every oh. Friday all day, actually. Um, so so 
I, we do do quite a lot of plastics and it has its own challenges for anesthesia and it's all yeah. about trying to keep the skin warm and make sure you get a good blood supply um, you know and that's all kind of cancer treatment whereas the other side of that coin is cosmetic surgery yes. yeah, yeah. You know, which may be plastic you know, um, uh, you know I, I'm kind of not involved in any of that at all okay. I, I do have friends who are involved in that and apparently the money is really very good oh yeah um, so, but, um, but it hasn't reached its hands all the way into the NHS yet. So, yeah. Well, so, the, yeah, the health service has managed to avoid that, that particular hot potato. I, th- I think the origins of what you would probably call, um, plastic surgery, um, come from World War One. like all yes, these, uh, all these soldiers absolutely. coming back disfigured and whatnot. And then surgeons really wanted to help them heal and, and give them, uh, you know, new faces or new limbs or whatnot. And, uh, of course it was just sort of co-opted by the capitalist medical industrial uh-huh. complex and uh, yep, there's, there's money in those turned creases into, yeah, yep. turned into cosmetic surgery so and many years ago I used to work at Sidcup Hospital which was one of the first places that pioneered this kind of surgery just yeah. after yeah after the first world war and so they have a fantastic library of photographs of before and after for for soldiers from the trenches yeah had bits of skin grafted from here to there and yeah it's, you know, it's remarkable brave astonishing yeah um, work but yeah it becomes something different now well if your podcasting career doesn't take off but it already has <laughs> um maybe there's some cosmetic uh, anesthetist work for you everyone's got to pay the rent somehow mm-hmm. uh, what, what are we going to watch next time i think we've settled on Mission Impossible. Oh, pod favorite Tom Cruise. Yes, yes. returns to the pod. Mission uh, Impossible. Um, but we will be comparing it to the film that I can never get the yep. name of correct. Uh, so I believe the correct name is the 39 Steps. It but if is. I call it the 49 Steps or the 29 Steps yep. or the 73 Steps or, you know, whatever, you get the idea. 39 Steps. Hitchcock classic. And what's the full title of the Tom Cruise vehicle? I think it's... So it's, Mich- yeah, Mission Impossible, colon, Dead Reckoning, colon, part one, <laughs> Sem- semicolon. Certificate 15, so something like that. So, my, yes. My confession going in is I don't think I've seen an entire Mission Impossible film in my life. So, <gasps> I'm jumping right up to this is probably what the fourth installment or. Oh, no. This is like the seventh or the eighth, oh my I God. think. Okay. Absolutely. I'm yeah. You've got a lot, of, a lot of catching up to do before the next part. <laughs> going in for the Two Real Cinema Club family. I'm going in for you in advance. Reconnaissance. <gasps> Um, right, so we well, we will be back. Uh, in the meantime, please smash the patriarchy. Mm. Thank you for joining us. Yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, we will see you next week for some popcorn counter and uh, another chat with Michael Pruitt as well. Awesome. Good. All that to look forward to. See you next time. Thank you, everybody. Bye.